Welcome to Season 2 of Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Darren Evans, the Managing Director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about bringing new plays into the world. And boy, are we kicking off our second season with a bang. Joining us today are a playwright and director pair that are poised to remake the new play scene here in Boston. I am talking, of course, about Nathan Allen Davis, the brand new associate professor of the practice of playwriting and head of MFA playwriting here at BU, and his longtime collaborator, Megan Sandberg-Zakian, the brand new artistic director of Boston Playwrights Theater. Both have started their new positions within the last month or two after the retirement of BPT's beloved and legendary Kate Snodgrass. Let's learn a little more about them. Nathan Allen Davis is a playwright and screenwriter whose works include Nat Turner in Jerusalem, Don Trell Who Kissed the Sea, and The Wind and the Breeze. He has served as a lecturer in theater and as the Berlin Playwright-in-Residence at Princeton University and is currently developing a television show about the Tulsa Race Massacre for MTV Entertainment Studios. Some of Nathan's awards include a Wyndham Campbell Prize, a Whiting Award in Drama, a Steinberg Playwright Award, and the Stavis Playwright Award. Pop quiz for you, Nathan. Who is your favorite living playwright? Um, I mean, I'm very afraid to answer that question on a podcast. I'm going to... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a playwright who is living that I, whose plays have consistently um, inspired me and excited me and that I find endlessly fascinating. And that would be Susan Laurie Parks. Amazing. Megan Sandberg-Zakian is a theater artist, author, educator, and director whose focus is on the development of new American plays. Megan has taught classes and workshops at Brown University, Yale University, Harvard University, and Northeastern University. Her first book, There Must Be Happy Endings, On a Theater of Optimism and Honesty, is available now from The Third Thing Press. And you may have recently seen her directing work on Boston Common with Commonwealth Shakespeare's Summer Smash, Much Ado About Nothing. Megan, your pop quiz, name your favorite place to eat around Boston. Oh my gosh, mine is so much easier than Nathan's. Um, my, well, currently I'm super into a restaurant in my neighborhood. I live in Jamaica Plain um, and I'm really into Vivi. It's like spelled V-E-E-V-E-E -E -E on South Street because they have an, a gorgeous back patio. Um, and so, you know, outdoor dining is, is the name of the game for safety right now. And they have this, this peach heirloom tomato salad that is completely ridiculous. So I'm very, very into Vivi at the moment. Vivi. I love it. I haven't been there. I'm going to check that out. Maybe you should check it out too. You'll maybe see Megan on the patio. <laughs> Uh, these two have a relationship going back many years. Megan directed the world premiere of Nathan's play, Don Trell, Who Kissed the Sea, at the Cleveland Public Theater in 2015. Nat Turner in Jerusalem at New York Theater Workshop. And this winter, the two will launch a third, The High Ground, at Washington, D.C.'s Arena Stage. 
We are so excited to have these two incredible artists working together at Boston Playwrights Theater and on the podcast today. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yay. All right. I mentioned in the intro that you've worked together on several of Nathan's plays. So I'm interested, what was your working relationship like when you first started on a play together? And what is it now? How has it changed? What have you learned from each other in those collaborations? Hmm. I mean, it was awesome. And I would say that it's still awesome. Yeah. It's evolved from awesome to awesome. I think the first time we worked together uh, on Dontrell in Cleveland, we didn't get a ton of time together, really. But I think, I think really, to me, what characterizes our collaboration has been just a sort of continuous conversation about not just the plays that we're working on together, but about the theater and about life and... Um, you know, I, I think I shared a draft of Nat Turner in Jerusalem with Megan that was actually kind of a draft zero. You know, it wasn't even really the, the play that ended up being produced. But we had this conversation about just like her, resp- her response, you know what I mean? And we talked about uh, kind of the idea for the play together, you know what I mean? And so I just found Megan to be an extremely... Well, I'm not sure what word to use. <laughs> a, a very a person who's a joy to collaborate with and to talk with, and and uh, you know, when when we talk about theater, I get excited and inspired to write, and so um, yeah, it's been awesome to <laughs> repeat what I said earlier. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, all of that for sure, and I think the the conversation piece of it that Nathan is talking about. I mean, I can remember exactly where I was when we had that conversation about that zero draft of Nat Turner in Jerusalem. It was was a driveway moment. I was sitting in my car and I sat in my car for like an hour in my driveway having this conversation. Um, And I just remember feeling this feeling of like the, the plates of the world shifting around me, like realizing that talking about the play was helping me see something about the world and understand something about my big questions about like who we are and where we are. And this play was being developed in the run up to the 2016 election. Um, And actually the world premiere happened right as the election was about to happen in October of 2016. So it was like, actually the play was kind of a, it was a kind of hard, terrifying process developing and premiering the play for this reason, because I felt like the play was helping me understand what was happening. Um, And I think for me, that's the, that's the place where I feel like it's like, I feel like I'm growing as a human being and my capacity to be in the world in relationship to Nathan and his writing and our collaboration. And that's happening both like on an artist level and a human level. I feel like I, I'm like watching what kind of parent Nathan is too, in addition to like what kind of playwright he is, you know? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a uniquely powerful collaboration for me. And and that just keeps having various reverberations in my life. And I, I can tell that this play, the high ground, and, you know, if anyone's in um, DC in, in February, March, I hope you'll come and see it. 
likewise is opening up some space for me around questions that I have about the, for me, the big thing that's resonating is when we are paying attention to what we inherit to, to, to legacies that we carry with us, um, how, how can we carry forward legacies of love in addition to legacies of trauma? There are legacies of trauma and violence that are there. And how do we also keep a hold of the legacies, uh, the powerful legacies of love and connection as well? Um, and that's feeling really important right now. Nathan, you've described yourself as a poet at heart. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what role does poetry play in the writing of your plays? I, I appreciate the way that poets, you know, having one, really one avenue to communicate with words, you know, are able to uh, unfold all of this meaning, you know, for, for the reader or the listener or the audience, what have you, right? And so really, I think, Playwriting and poetry, they really have the same roots. They're really the same thing in a lot of ways. Uh, theater, of course, has other elements to it. And depending on the type of play you write, it may be more or less complex. But I think at the core of it, it is poetry. You know, it's a person writing words that have more than their literal meaning. Um, they're trying to communicate feelings and emotions and ideas and thoughts and connect these disparate dots, you know, about who we are, all this. And I think those are all things that poets do. And I think uh, in a, if, if you're a practicing poet, you, you, you know, like you, the discipline is so much about the words because that's really literally all you have to work with, you know? Um, and so I really admire that about poetry. And I think, I, I did write poetry more when I was younger and figuring out myself as a writer. And I think I reached a point where I hit kind of a wall with poetry. I didn't really know if I had enough to say or enough I wanted to do. It wasn't quite in and of itself that interesting to me to keep trying to do. But theater, the event of a play being around a theater like that is endlessly inspiring to me and exciting to me. So... I think whether I did this consciously or not, I just kind of gravitated toward the theater with whatever poetic sensibilities I might have acquired, you know, um, throughout life. Um, Megan, as a director, I'm wondering, um, do you have, and having just come off of direct, directing Shakespeare, of course, which is so much uh, about the poetry of that language, is there a particular strategy you use for approaching plays with, poetic or heightened language or is the approach different for every individual play? Well, um, yeah, I mean, for sure the approach is different for every individual play. I, and, um, I strongly gravitate towards what I guess maybe what I would call like an epic theatrical sensibility, um, which I feel like, uh, Nathan's plays certainly have, Shakespeare's plays have, you know, Brecht, which has been a foundational directing and thinking about Brecht has been like a foundational intellectual exercise for me, um, often a frustrating one in my career. Uh, and, um, and, and 
and, you know, like Carol Churchill. And I, I feel like the, the, um, I resonate with the definition of epic theater. That's like a uh, theater that's very present with its audience, that, that the goal is to like be um, uh, in the town square uh, as opposed to in a naturalistic space with a fourth wall um, speaking into a civic conversation. Uh, uh, so a sort of Greek and Shakespearean energy in that way. So for me, like the purpose of a poetic text at least the ones that I've gravitated towards, including the plays of Derek Walcott, um, have been uh, has been to um, give us some language to as as you know maybe to like paraphrase Brecht um, to remind us that we are not in real life. You know to 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 ping that separation for us a little bit to i mean it you know brecht calls it alienation um or defamiliarization but for me it's a it's actually it's sort of a sparkly thing you know it's like it's like this is this is something um this is something poetic uh because it's performance and it's not um a documentary it's not you know me eating breakfast so so that's that's what that's what that kind of heightened language does for me. And then it's interesting um, because it's because you have that you have that intention. And often as a director, your task is to make sure that that heightened language is um, fully present and accessible to all audiences. So you want it to both feel to both signal to people this is different. Um, experience this as something apart. Um, and also this is completely meant for you. You are invited into this. You are welcome in this. Um, and I, and so I love the, I love the challenge of getting both of those things at the same time. And I hope that folks that saw much ado this summer felt, uh, felt that. Um, all right. Well, that little, uh, sort of mini lesson on Brechtian epic theater, uh, reminds me that you both have a teaching background and of course, uh, Boston Playwrights Theater is part of the MFA playwriting program. I'd love to talk uh, uh, on education for a, a couple minutes here as well. What is something the two of you always keep at the forefront of your mind while you're teaching? A concept or or a, a method or uh, what do you always want to make sure that you're you're providing for your students? I think what I try to keep at the forefront of my mind is that I'm teaching for the students' benefit and not for my benefit. Um, I mean, that might be obvious. That's because I get a lot out of teaching. I mean, I love teaching and I, I find myself inspired by it and excited by it and all of that. But I think teaching is also kind of a performance. Um, you know, when you teach, you, you prepare a kind of script on some, on some level you you have to get something across to your audience, which is the students. But I think um, it was like any performance is an act of generosity. It's an, it's something you offer to somebody in hopes that they uh, enjoy it, benefit from it, appreciate it. So it's just for them, you know what I mean? And so I think uh, when teaching... I guess because as a teacher, you are endowed with a status of like that you know something, right? Which can potentially feed the ego in a way that could be unhealthy if you were to, um, you know, take it the wrong way, right? 
And so there's something that's sort of beautifully difficult about wanting to impart knowledge, but also not to assume that you have all the knowledge, you know? So that's something I try to, I always try to remind myself of, um, is that the method isn't as important as the person that you're trying to reach. Yeah. I, it's funny. I have a similar strategy in, in rehearsal when I'm directing, I will actually often tell my stage manager, uh, please feel free to like tap me on the shoulder or just say, talk less, uh, in rehearsal. If you feel me like just, you know, blathering on, cause I, I have that tendency exactly where you were talking about Nathan and, and yeah, sometimes it's really unhelpful. <laughs> Megan, what about you? Yeah. Um, well, that was just so beautifully articulated. And I think I, I certainly move from a similar space of feeling like teaching is a, a role, you know, a role, a performance. It's, um, it's something that you do, uh, to, um, to serve. Uh, and I think, I mean, I, I am not, um, teaching is something that I've usually done in the context of, um, something very craft based, you know? And so I think like my, um, not, it's, it's often not in the context of, uh, I have a body of knowledge I want to impart, but more like, um, there are some skills that you're here to learn and I'm going to hold the space. I'm going to hold the, you know, container for those, for those skills to be practiced, um, as an actor, as a director, as a playwright, and, um, or even as a, as a thinker, as an intellectual. Um, so I, I think for me, the biggest thing, um, and I, as a director and as uh, an educator is um, that my first job is to be fully present um, in the room with the human beings I'm in the room with and to uh, see and hear all of the other people in the room with me in a way that in a, in such a transparent way that they can feel fully seen and heard, um, that they feel invited in with their, their um, all of who they are, and they feel like they're being listened to and taken in by me, um, to whatever extent they're able to bring that their full selves in. And um, the reason that I feel the the reason that that became foundational for me um, as a director is that. I think that's how you uh, get the best performances uh, is, is, you know, if actors, if actors feel like they can bring their full selves in. And I also, you know, I think it's, is it maybe Ann Bogart who said um, uh, the, you know, the, the director is the first audience and the person responsible for um, holding uncertainty, the longest of anyone else in the room. Um, and I always feel like it's my job to sort of, uh, hold that container um, with all of the uncertainty and the weirdness that our world can contain, um, hold it safely for other people to, to bring themselves into. So I, yeah, I think, I think that's where I start. Um, and often as a director and as an educator, if I'm really deeply listening and seeing um, my collaborators or my students, uh, it tells me where to go to. Um, like I might have a preordained idea in my mind of like, you know, scene two is going to happen this way. Um, 
And then when, um, when my collaborators bring something else in, it shifts the plan. And as an educator, uh, I always try to build in space for that because it's quite exciting when you see, um, oh, uh, these students are really hungry for this. So I might have planned you know, I maybe planned this whole other thing. I planned for, you know, heirloom tomato and peach salads because I think that is great. But um, like they just really need some carbs and I I can do that. I can bring, I can bring in some carbs. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, I mean, certainly that's of service to the students as Nathan suggested, but also that's the way to have the biggest impact because if, if someone is really, wanting, you know, that loaf of bread, they're not going to take in too much of your peaches and tomatoes. Um, and, and, and that's, that's a hard earned lesson for me, actually. Um, but especially working on new plays with playwrights and also with, you know, teaching directors and actors and designers how to work on new plays is always the, 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 the thing that I'm saying is like, do not, your job is not to bring in the thing that you think the play needs. Your, your job is to listen closely to, uh, the playwright and um, hear from them what the play needs and respond. Wow, I, I kind of want to take a class with both of you now. Um, and also I'm realizing that I probably should have had a larger lunch um, as Megan's bringing all the food metaphors um, for us today. Um, I'm interested a little bit in, um, there has been to my mind anyway, uh, a in recent years, a critical reexamination of, of the, quote, theatrical canon and what, what that means in 2022 and what its deficiencies are. And so I'm wondering, are there certain plays or playwrights that you think of as must-reads for theater students? Or does is it always different depending on what class you're teaching? Or how do you decide out of the, you know, millions of works um like what your current students should be should should know there's a lot of, even if you think about classic what we consider to be the classic canon if you're talking about for example the greeks or shakespeare even if you're just talking about those plays that's a lot of plays you know and i think there are also like these ancient Sanskrit plays that are often not always considered classes, but they very much are really cinematic. And um, when I say cinematic, I mean like, you know, now they're in the clouds, now they're on the earth. You know what I mean? I mean, in, you know, thousand year old plays or more, you know what I mean? So certainly what we consider to be classic is defined somewhat just by definition. But just by definition of, of classic, it's, it's defined by the past. It's defined by what people have told us, you know, is important, right? And so I don't think I have an exact list for me of you got to know this play, this play, this play, or you haven't, you haven't graduated from playwriting school or whatever that, that is, right? Um, I... And part of the reason for that is because by necessity, there's, to, 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 for the practice of a writer, there's actually quite a bit of facility and ignorance to a certain extent, by which I mean, 
when you don't know what you don't know, you're not inhibited by it. And you oftentimes uh, create something wonderful because you're not overburdened by all the knowledge that you have or think you have or think you should have. But to me, the more important, more important than what plays are included is how a, per, how a practicing writer reads them, understands them, you know, in terms of uh, plays that are considered part of the canon that I think are really valuable to go into. One of them is Macbeth, which I can say, cause I'm not in the theater right now. I'm doing this from somewhere else. Um, because that play has so many elements of things that we consider to be foundational to storytelling, you know, and it's also weird and it includes so much of the supernatural and it, there's so many random, it's got everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I look for plays that are, that have a lot that hold a lot of those things in them. Um, but again, I'm not saying that Macbeth is the one play on my list. I'm just saying that's an example of a play that, wow, if you really look at that play and study it, um, you can see, you can learn quite a bit about the craft. You know what I mean? Um, August Wilson's plays, which I, I do consider to be classics as well in terms of how, how powerful they are and how undeniably, um, how they've undeniably reached a large audience right and you know august wilson himself said that he really didn't study plays so much you know but he was very well read and you know so so i think there's something about wanting to keep your creative mind open so that you're not always consciously or constantly um inter doing an interpretive act as opposed to creative act where you're like oh let me do my version of this like it's great if you can really create something you know from your own perspective and through your own experience um but that doesn't need to be opposed to um riffing off of a classic or, or what have you right um so yeah I, I i try to just you know uh invite that conversation with the writers that i that i teach and I don't try to hide from reading classics, but I also don't want to make it seem as if, oh, if you don't read this, you'll, you don't get it. You know what I mean? Amazing. We have to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, but when we return, we will dive into new play creation some more with Megan and Nathan and play a quick game where they will write something for us on the spot. We'll be right back. Is there anything worse than opening your refrigerator for that meal or dessert you've been craving, only to find that it's gone missing? A recent study from Fridge Weekly documented that roommate food snatching rose almost 87% during the pandemic. That's a lot of filched food. If you're sick of finding that your roommates have leached on your leftovers, check out the newest security system from Solely Safe, Dinner Defense. Their state-of-the-art dinner defense cameras can be placed inside both your refrigerator and freezer and connect to your smartphone and other devices. You'll receive a notification via the Solely Safe app when someone starts snooping through your food and get a snapshot of the culprit. And if you want the ultimate in dinner defense, upgrade to the Zap It model. 
which delivers a taser-like electric shock to any unauthorized party grabbing your goodies. This system also works great for offices. No more of Doug's lies when you confront him about your missing PB&J. He'll either be caught on camera or caught convulsing on the floor. Order now at solelysafe.com slash tightcast for 30% off your order. That's S-O-L-E-L-Y safe.com slash tightcast. Welcome back. We are here with Megan Sandberg-Zakian and Nathan Allen Davis, who are together assuming the leadership of Boston Playwrights Theater and the MFA Playwriting Program at BU. I want to dive into that topic specifically. Uh, BPT has been mentoring playwrights and producing new plays here for decades. Uh, what are some things that you are both looking forward to bringing in your new roles here? Maybe we'll start with you, Megan. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, um, that I and we are very honored and excited to continue in the venerable footsteps of Kate Snodgrass um, in uh, being a place, being a place at BPT that is both a home um, for uh, playwrights who are in the midst of their formal education through the MFA program and a home for local artists in Boston. I mean, this really um, exciting uh, sort of uh, outward and inward facing mission that's both, both of which parts are about new plays and playwrights um, is really special and unique. And one of the things that um, drew me and I think drew both of us to, um, to coming to BPT. Um, so that's a, that's just an exciting, uh, it's an exciting um, space to step into um, and to be part of that, that legacy. Uh, and um, I think the, 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 as we think about what it means going forward in 2022 and beyond to um, be the home for new plays in Boston and to center playwrights, to center the voices and visions of writers and to center new plays. Um, I think that uh, Nathan and I are considering um, what is the role of playwrights in our world? You know, what, why are playwrights vital to um to us as human beings, to the civic conversation that we want to have, um, and to uh, how we might be present uh, in a healthy and sustainable way with each other in this world. Um, that 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 playwrights and artists of all kinds have a role in that, and we want to we want to BPT and the MFA program to be a space. Um, we want to hold space here for writers to. Um, develop those skills. And some, you know, sometimes the task of, uh, sometimes the task of writing about uh, what's really happening in our world, in, in, you know, in, in ourselves, in our souls, in our spirits, in our communities, in our political life and our social and economic life that, and what has happened in the past, um, that, that the, the task of writing can be quite fatiguing, um, and can be even, um, painful. Uh, so I, I feel like at the center of my, and I feel pretty comfortable saying our practice um, is deep care uh, and um, and holding of writers that may be doing a difficult task of dredging something up um, 
often in the case of Nathan's plays, I feel like he's grabbing something out of uh, uh, the jaws of history that, uh, you know, that where, where it's been, where it's, where there's been an attempt to destroy it or invisibilize it or erase it or, 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 uh, distort it in some kind of way and the and the work this this it's like this incredibly effortful work as an artist to 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 like dredge back in there and get the truth what feels true to you and to show it to an audience um and uh that's that is that is hard work um so uh i'm hoping that we we are going to continue to make spaces for artists to do that hard work um and to show us uh their vision of how we might move forward together I feel like that's like a very lofty <laughs> um uh, you know idea idea e description uh, or answer to your question but that's that's what's on my mind at this moment yeah cosign cosign on that um and i think it's it's important to hold on to lofty ideals when you're working on art, you know, um, because the, the practical difficulties of life are always going to be there no matter what. And of course there's a lot of compromise that has to happen in terms of how you enact your goals. And it's not easy, but, but I think making sure you know, what you're doing, why you're doing it, you know, um, it's essential. And I think that's something that I know that Megan and I both share that belief that, you know, we're living in a time in the world that really needs new stories. Um, and they're not just going to happen. Like we have to make them if you, if we want them, you know? And I think, I think right now it's like, especially if you think about, you know, where we've been as a human race, which is obviously a very long <laughs> history and discussion, but, you know, I, I think that we're living in a time when we recognize that we want something different in terms of we want a world that isn't, where where all the terms of engagement aren't based on conflict, that we actually want to create a society that is loving and just and has a space for everybody and and all these things. And that's never really happened in the world at large before. You know, our our um our understanding of the way the world works is that there, there are opposing groups and the most powerful one wins. So fight for what you need. And if you don't beat the enemy, then, then you're gone, you know. And how do you emerge from that into a different mindset? And that's not an easy thing to do, but I think, I think that art and certainly plays are a part of creating the foundations for that. As we briefly talked about at the top of the podcast, you are both collaborating on Nathan's new play, The High Ground, at Arena Stage this coming winter. What can audiences expect from that production? 
so the high ground uh, is um, part of Arena's power play commissions, where they, com- where they commissioned a bunch of writers to um, write plays that are inspired by important moments in American history. Uh, and um, and Nathan uh, was really looking at the um, race massacre that happened in Tulsa uh, in the Greenwood district in Tulsa in 1921, where, um, the white community basically destroyed this entire thriving black community that was known as black wall street and was, um, really just sort of like a a full prosperous world unto itself. Um, and, uh, uh, this is something the, the, this story, I, w- I was talking earlier about things that have been like snatched from the jaws of history. I feel like this, this has been, uh, the story's actually started to come into our consciousness more in the last couple of years, which is really um, important and helpful. So I'm glad that more people know about, about that, uh, what happened in Tulsa at that time, um, which unfortunately is not the only place that something similar happened. Uh, and um, the play is a two-hander, two actors. Um, I don't know. I guess that's 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 the Nathan and Megan wheelhouse. <laughs> that was the, the last the last one was a two-hander too. Um, uh, and how there's actually some other similarities. Maybe I would say spoiler alert, but it's a two-hander, but maybe not a two-character play, similar to mm. Nat Turner in Jerusalem. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's set, I should say, it's set in the present, mostly. Mm-hmm. So even though it deals with the Tulsa Race Massacre, it's more about the way that we interact with it now, as opposed to trying to reenact or go back into history and recreate something. It's actually set in the present. Yeah. All right. Well, folks are going to have to wait until February, March to get a hold of the high ground, but our audience here on Typecast really craves new stories and we need to give them one right now. So we are going to play a round of one word story. (laughs) Nathan, we're going to start with you. You're going to say a word then Megan will say the next word and then back to you, Nathan, and so forth. One word at a time until you've, we've got a sentence or two and a mini story. So this is like a little test, a live test of your collaborative skills that you've honed. What happens if you fail? <laughs> uh, infamy. Infamy, of course, is, is what happens. Stakes are high. Oh Stakes gosh. are high. But, you know, uh, to give you a fair chance, uh, a little foothold to start on, and because Megan's been talking so much about food, we're going to say that the topic of the story is dinner. So the story is about dinner somehow, one word at a time each. And uh, the amazing Sydney Love is going to record everything down and we'll read it back when you're done creating. Are you ready to give this a try? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Take it away when ready, Nathan. I am waiting for my dinner guest to walk in 
through. That. Strange. Yellow. Portal. <laughs> Tonight. I have prepared a shark <laughs> on rye. <laughs> With a delicious garnish of olives and thyme marinated in a potion of <laughs> fluids <laughs> <laughs> yes, marinated in a potion of yeah. fluids. I don't know if it's going to get thank any you. better than that. Uh, although, <laughs> I think thank you for ruining my appetite a little bit there. But uh, Sydney, <laughs> our student, our student worker uh, who came up with this game, Sydney, read us back. What is this brand new story that they've just created? I'm waiting for my dinner guests to walk in through that strange yellow portal. Tonight, I have prepared a shark on rye with a delicious garnish of olives and thyme marinated in a potion of fluids. <laughs> I love it. I feel like that actually had some uh, echoes of Macbeth that you were talking about earlier, Nathan. There's a potion in there. Mm. It's a little bit weird. There's a portal. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's, yeah, there's something there. There could be a porter in this story. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I love it. Thank you for indulging us in our one word story game. And thank you so much to Nathan and Megan for joining us to kick off season two. I expect we'll be hearing more from you both as the year continues on Typecast. Uh, for those interested in more info about the high ground, go to arenastage.com and you can always find out what's happening at Boston Playwrights Theater at bostonplaywrights.org. Until next time. I'm Darren Evans, and this is Typecast. Today's episode was written by our student producer, Sydney Love, and edited by me. Sydney also wrote this episode's parody commercial. The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theater, including our season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org. <laughs>